Canada started later than the U.S. toward unionization. Uh, you know, we, we adopted the same framework as the U.S. Wagner Act model, but we didn't adopt it till during the Second World War. So we were late at the game, but there was, you know, significant growth in unionization in the early post-war period, and then much faster growth when the public sector became allowed to unionize. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Craig Riddell, who is Emeritus Professor of Economics in the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his analyses of Canadian labor markets. Craig, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thanks, Orly. Very happy to be here on this side of the 49th parallel. <laughs> yes, we should explain that you're in, you're, you're in Canada. Uh, well, let's begin our discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up, Craig? Well, I grew up mainly in a small town uh, west of Toronto, about 20 miles west of Toronto, called Milton. I was actually born in, in uh, Toronto. My father was a pilot during the Second World War, and um, Canada had an a, uh, educational program for returning veterans, similar to your GI Bill in the U.S., and he decided to uh, become a chiropractor. So he he went to the only chiropractic college that existed in Canada at the time in, in Toronto. And so I was born there, and uh, my next oldest sister was born there as well. Then we moved to Prince Edward Island on the East Coast for a few years, where my mother was from. While my father uh, set up a practice, uh, chose a place to practice uh, as a chiropractor, and he chose Milton, which was a small town. When I left for college, it was about 6,000 people. Lovely, lovely place, uh, surrounded by farms. And there was a was part of the Niagara Escarpment there, which uh, we, we called the Milton Mountain. But uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a lovely place to grow up, but very much small town Ontario. I didn't know you were you're, you're Scottish Canadian, too. Yeah, there's... Um, a long line of William Riddells going back many generations. I was William Craig, and my father was William Gordon, and you know, on it goes. And my mother's ancestry uh, was originally from Scotland as well. They settled in New England and then moved up to Canada when things got heated in the U.S. and, and um, settled in Prince Edward Island. So that's where she, that's where she grew up. Where did you go to school in Milton? High school? Yes, uh, we moved to Milton when I was just, I was halfway through kindergarten. And so I, I started grade one in Milton and went to elementary and high school there. Ontario had a pretty good education system uh, at that time by Canadian standards and I think by international standards as well. Um, 
one of the things that was unique about it was um, it included grade 13. So there were 13 grades in elementary and high school. Most provinces in Canada went to grade 12. And grade 13 was a, was a, a year, which is a testing year for a university. So there were all of the exams you wrote were province-wide exams, and they were marked by a, a committee, not by your own teachers, uh, a committee of experts in the fields. Uh, and so that was that was very uh, important for whether you got into university and, and what kind of uh, financial offers you might get. Well, and now I know uh, you, you did go to a rather unusual university. Yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, you know, I, I took a very unorthodox way of becoming a labor economist because I didn't even study labor economics in grad school. <laughs> I, I, I did apply to some civilian universities and, and got accepted at Western and Guelph, I think it was. But for mainly for financial reasons, I chose to go to military college, the Royal Military College in uh, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, and so even though I didn't really didn't understand what I was getting into, I uh, enlisted in the military and, 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 and ended up at the Royal Military College. You know, I even noticed uh, that you were, you were awarded a prize at the, R, at the Royal Military College, the Nordheimer Award or something like that. It seems to be on your CV, so I imagine you're proud of it. What is it for? It's for an essay I wrote in my fourth year. Uh, there was a... Um, it wasn't necessarily a requirement, but there was an encouragement to do a major paper in your fourth year, and I wrote it, and uh, it won. <laughs> so I was I was happy with that. Uh, one of my economics profs was sort of the supervisor of it. Uh, he was a development specialist, um, and uh, he was very encouraging. Uh, so yeah, I was quite happy about that. So that means you served in the military in Canada. Yeah, technically I served in the military. Well, first of all, one of the drawbacks of going to RMC was there was a military commitment after you graduated. Uh, at the time I went, it was three years. Uh, we were actually the last, my class was the last of the three-year commitment. It then increased to four and then later to five. So I knew I was signing up for something that I might not necessarily want to do long term, but I, I felt that three years in the Navy sounded might, might be kind of exciting. So how long were you in the Navy? I did my three years. By the way, I should just add, you're, you're, you're the third person in the series of podcasts that actually served in the Navy. Ron Oaxaca was in the Navy. Did you know that? No, no, I, I haven't heard that. He was in the Navy and Bob McCursey, in fact, uh, did would join, he was actually during Second World War. So he was in the Navy too. Uh, it was kind of surprising to me to hear about these backgrounds. He went to Penn because they had some ROTC program that he could be involved with. and got. It was some special program that, that paid for his way, more or less in the same kind of argument as you made for why you went to the Royal Military College. So how did you end up in graduate school? At, at RMC, I had uh, started out in engineering. Of course, those were the Cold War days and the Sputnik and all this, and engineers seemed to be in demand. And I spent the first two years at RMC in engineering. But in, when you did engineering at RMC, you took the same courses as everybody else, except more. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what they say. You don't have to be a genius to be an engineer, but you have to work really hard. First year at RMC, we, we had 36 hours 
in the classroom each week, five hours each day and an hour on Saturday. And second year was about the same. We had a little less once in your third and fourth years. In the second term of my second year, I took a, well, we all took a course, a Principles of Economics course. And that was my first exposure to economics as a discipline. And by that time, I was I was having real sec- doubts about whether I wanted to be an engineer. I had joined a kind of a youth engineering program or something at, at when I was at RMC, and we did a few field trips. And I thought, you know, uh, this is what I really want to do with my life. I mean, one one field trip was to a small appliance plant that made toasters and <laughs> irons and stuff like that. And I thought, boy. <laughs> and then another was to a cement factory, and you could hardly see what was going on because of all the dust. And <laughs> So it wasn't as glamorous as I expected. and But more importantly, I, I really found economics, uh, the, the first year economics course, to be, uh, it really attracted me. The idea of asking big questions and pretending you knew the answers and uh, <laughs> and, and basically the analytical side. Uh, you know, in engineering, we did, used a lot of math and physics and chemistry and so on. But I liked the analytical side of economics. Uh, so after after thinking about it over the summer, I decided to switch into the arts and science part of RMC and, and to study economics. So most of the economics, except for that first year, of course, that all the economics I took as an undergrad were in the third and fourth years. And you couldn't actually, RMC was a small college, so you couldn't actually specialize in economics. You had to either be in economics and commerce or economics and political science. And so I, I chose economics and commerce. After I'd finished my four years at RMC, and I did reasonably well, not, not you know, my, my grades were never spectacular, uh, but I did get an honors degree. I mean, there were a lot of demands in your time at RMC. There was the military stuff, there was all the sports, and then there was academics. And really, uh, there wasn't a lot of time for... Uh, for just straight academics. I decided I didn't, after my experience in the Navy, I decided I didn't want to stay in the armed forces. But I was fortunate in being able to get my last posting after I left the ship to the Army base in Kingston, uh, which is what I'd requested um, because my my wife, my late wife and I had met in Kingston while I was at RMC and and we liked the town, and I was hoping to get into Queens to do a master's degree. And then also the other places I was applying to for the master's were also in Ontario. So I was fortunate in getting a point, getting a, my next posting in Kingston, and then I, that's where I left the military. Initially, I my plan was to do a master's and then probably get a job with the federal government, which was uh, expanding rapidly, and there was a lot of demand for economists at, at the time. This would be in the early to mid seventies, more more early seventies. And uh, I didn't have any intention of doing a PhD, but but in the master's year, it was the first time in my life I'd really applied myself academically, and uh, I did quite well. Uh, and a couple of the profs encouraged me to stay on for a PhD. One of them encouraged me to go to the U.S., which is probably what I should have done. But 
but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I ended up deciding to stay on for the PhD and, uh, and was happy with how that worked out. What did you write uh, about? What was your thesis? One of the big issues uh, in those days was uh, inflation and unemployment. This was uh, early 70s. Inflation had been building up through the 60s. And um, I learned quite a bit about that area from Richard Lipsy, who had moved to Queens around not long before I joined, before I went to Queens from the UK, where he'd spent most of his early career. So I took macro from him in the MA year and then again, uh, some course called business cycles or something like that in, in the PhD year. So we got a lot, a, a big grounding in the inflation and unemployment area. That was the, a time when there was a lot of interest in the micro foundations of, of uh, inflation and unemployment. You know, the famous Phelps volume, Phelps and Mortensen and others. Um, and Lipsy gave you a sense of excitement about the progress of the discipline. Oh, I, I think I read your dissertation paper. It was an econometrica, wasn't it, about using contract wage data? Yeah. So one of the things that was fortunate that happened to me at Queen's was um, I ended up as a research assistant for, besides Lipsy's courses, which got me interested in the whole literature on inflation and unemployment and the Phillips curve, or one of the opportunities I got was to work as a research assistant for two young assistant profs there who were working in the area of wage determination, uh, Robin Rowley and David Wilton. They both left Queens subsequently, but uh, they were active in that area then. And so I learned quite a bit about it, uh, the area from working with them. And I also learned about this data source of individual contract data that had been collected for about 20 years in the Department of Labor in Ottawa. And so I was able to, when it came to my thesis research, I was able to get a hold of those data. And my my uh, thesis and that econometrica paper were based on using it. What did, I don't remember, what did you find out? Well, a big issue at the time was is there really a Phillips curve? The early papers by Phillips and Lipsy had used annual data. They had found a you know a strong relationship between uh, wage inflation and unemployment. But once you move to the, the literature, then switched to using quarterly wage index data. Uh, and I think the original paper was by two British scholars, Dow and Dix Morrell. Um, and they had this overlap, overlapping annual wage change model. But there were problems with that. The big, probably the biggest problem was that because of the tendency toward longer-term wage contracts, the actual number of agreements being reached in any given quarter was small and quite variable. And the overlapping, so the overlapping annual wage change model didn't didn't have a way an easy way of taking account of that variation in the in the frequency of wage settlements in a given quarter. Uh, another problem with it was that the typical contract of two or three years by that time not only had a it, they were front end loaded, so they had more of an increase period in the initial period when the agreement was reached than later periods, but they also had deferred increases and deferred increases presumably. The size of them are a function of what the conditions are at the time 
the contracts negotiated, not at the time, the particular quarter when they actually are, are implemented. And the existing models didn't deal with that very well. Rowley and Wilton had a way of dealing with it that was rather complex and involved generalized least squares rather than ordinary least squares. And when they implemented their method, uh, they didn't find there was any evidence of a Phillips curve. The, the coefficient on the unemployment rate in their equation was was not significant. <laughs> and you had a paper with uh, John Pencavel with British data, uh, which had a different way of dealing with the frequency of wage settlements, uh, you know, a simpler, more intuitive way. But it also reached a negative conclusion that there was no Phillips curve. So there was an issue whether there was a Phillips curve. It's that, by the way, that issue, that issue is still around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some things never go away, right? Uh, anyway, a suitable way of getting around those problems was to use individual contract data when you could, you could take into account the increases that were going to occur through the life of an agreement, but at the time the agreement was reached. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, probably the key attraction of of these individual contract data. Uh, And uh, so that's what I ended up doing my thesis on. And I did find there was strong evidence of a Phillips curve. And there was actually evidence of those famous lipsy loops around the Phillips curve. We should explain that the the long history of the name for A.W. Phillips and uh, it was a correlation between wage changes and unemployment that uh, existed in British data at one point that he pointed out and has been a subject of discussion uh, endlessly, actually, by many economists since. You, you probably gave up on that after that. I'm guessing you stopped working on that problem. Yes and no. I, I did a few more papers in the area, uh, but then I decided, yeah, I wanted to move on to other things. You know, I wanted to ask you about that. You, you, you uh, uh, Going through the papers you've written, uh, many of them, not all, but many of them, implement a comparison between Canada and the U.S. And I think you've done that with unemployment uh, and I I think probably other things as well. And uh, I I think it would be interesting. I'm not sure how you can summarize what you've done, but uh, I I went through, in fact, the introduction to this book that uh, Cardin Freeman edited uh, called Small Differences That Matter. Basically, the idea being that Canada is a kind of a microcosm of the U.S. It's about 10% the size, and but has much, much, much in common uh, with the U.S. So in a way, if the Canadians do something institutionally different, it gives you some leverage to try to see whether that might have some effect on economic variables and outcomes. What, let's start with unemployment. You've studied that a great deal. And how do you describe the differences between uh, unemployment in the U.S. and Canada? That's a good question and a, and a big one. That's uh, there's, there's quite a literature on it. And yeah, there's certainly, I got quite involved in it once I uh, beca- actually became a labor economist. I, I should mention one other thing before. I, I actually never did labor as a field in my Ph.D., uh, my fields were econometrics and industrial organization. Uh, but because my thesis was on wage settlements, and when I went, my first job was at the University of Alberta. Uh, when I went there, I was teaching 
micro theory and econometrics and industrial organization. I wasn't teaching labor. But when UBC approached me, uh, ended up going there uh, four years later, they wanted me to teach labor relations. Um, they had a, a, a you know well-known labor relations scholar who was retiring. He was more you know institutional style, but uh, quite prominent in his field. Uh, and uh, they, they wanted someone with more modern, you know, data-driven approaches to the subject to teach. They, they had uh, two undergrad courses in labor relations and a graduate course in the economics of labor relations. So that's when I started shifting over into labor relations. UBC had a labor economist um, around my age at the time, but he left a couple of years later. He, got, he married one of our graduate students and, and they went to get jobs together. And so then I, they asked me to teach labor economics as well. So, so I, I got into labor economics and labor relations kind of through the back door, if you like, um, never having done it as a, as a field. But I found it to be just a superb field to work in. I really enjoyed teaching in the area and I enjoyed doing research in the area. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside from the question you asked. So the question you have is about Canada-U.S. Uh, differences. That small that that first volume by Card and Freeman, um, I did a paper on differences between in union unionization between Canada and the U.S. In that, well, let's talk about that for a second. I was going to ask you about that. Those difference that differences persists, doesn't it? Canadian unionization yeah. rate is much higher than the U.S. Like the U.S., ours has been declining since it peaked. Uh, Back in the in the '60s, but uh, but it's still considerably higher. Canada started later than the U.S. toward unionization. Uh, you know, we we adopted the same framework as the U.S. Wagner Act model, but we didn't adopt it till during the Second World War. And during the Second World War, the federal government, well, first of all, labor relations and most of labor economics is under provincial jurisdiction in Canada. Um, but it, during the war, under the War Measures Act, the federal government had jurisdiction. And so they passed an or, a pr- order of counsel in the Privy Council, equivalent to a law, uh, that uh, established the right to unionize. Uh, and then that became adopted by most provinces, well, all provinces eventually, after the end of the war, when, when jurisdiction returned to uh, the provinces. Uh, so we were late at the game, uh, but there was, you know, significant growth in unionization in the early post-war period, and then much faster growth when the public sector became allowed to unionize in the late '60s. Up until that point in time, the, the view was, I mean, Canada was a British colony originally before it became a country, and oh, I mean, U.S. Uh, was too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We have uh, a lot in common. The view was that uh, the crown does not negotiate. <laughs> the crown <laughs> does not part. I see. Well, I guess we probably forgot that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, in, in the late 60s, there was a, an act passed that allowed federal civil servants to unionize. And then uh, provinces also followed suit uh, for uh, other public sector workers. That was a period of, of really strong spurt in economic growth, in union growth. I mean, a lot of it was just 
converting what were formerly employee associations into formal unions. Uh, so they were, civil servants had some form of collective representation before. They just weren't formally a union. Uh, but they certainly didn't have the right to strike until this became legal. Anyway, we, we did catch up with the U.S. in unionization, but then both countries' unionization declined, but it declined less quickly in Canada. Uh, so now, you know, we have unionization rates in the private sector around 15%, which is, you know, significantly higher than you. It's much lower than in the past in Canada. But we have very high unionization rates in the public sector, around 75% of public sector workers are uh, are unionized. And another reason unionization is greater in Canada is that, but also the fact we have a larger public sector than you do. We have about 20% of the, of the workforce is in the public sector broadly defined. This is including healthcare and yeah. education, social services. Whereas I think you're more like fifteen percent. Yes, and I guess because the healthcare is public in uh, in Canada, that's probably one of the big differences between the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, so that those are important factors, but there also are le- important legislative differences. We, the tradition in Canada, at the time when I wrote that paper for the Small Differences That Matter book, was that. A, a union could be certified at representing a, a group of workers if there was enough support through car, the card check system. That is, people signing a card saying, I want to be represented by a union. Uh, there was no need for a vote, for a mandatory vote uh, or a secret ballot vote. And that was pretty universal in Canada in the provinces and in the public sector, in the federal sector, where there's some, about 10% of the workforce is in the, in fed, federally regulated. We did move away a bit from that in some provinces later. My son has some good papers on British Columbia uh, who, who switched back and forth between the card check and a secret ballot election, and then back to card check, depending on the government of the day. So there has been some movement back and forth, but but largely speaking, it's easier to organize a union in Canada than in the U.S. So that's part. That's definitely part of the story. Uh, the unionization efforts in the U.S., of course, have famous ones with Amazon and Starbucks, but uh, the companies have made incredible efforts and spent an enormous amount of money to, to avoid the unions in those areas. It's fascinating to watch if you read the Daily Labor Report. We don't have as, as much of a tradition of, you know, kind of union prevention or union busting experts that uh, get consulted on for yes. <laughs> trying to avoid. And paid well, too, I guess. But let's come back to the unemployment issue. I, I, I do want to ask you about a couple more things. I know you've studied that on and off many different times. I even actually tried to work on that at one point, Canada-U.S. unemployment differences. What, what, what's, what do you conclude from what you did? First of all, there are, despite what was originally believed, uh, that the the CPS in the U.S. and the Labor Force Survey in Canada were, are very similar surveys, uh, despite what was originally believed that they were basically had the same measurement methods. There are some measurement differences. So that's one of the reasons why unemployment, uh, especially since the early 80s, has been uh, higher than the U.S. In fact, St- Statistics Canada 
once these measurement differences were sorted out by academics like me and others, uh, they have this series they call alternative measures of unemployment, uh, which some of which are, are stricter than their their uh, standard ma- measure, and some of which are include other other people like people that say they uh, they want to work but they're not looking for work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so measurement differences now account for about one percentage point difference between Canada and the oh, US. Oh, I and see. Can, so that, that gets rid of a lot of the gap. Yeah. Stack Canada uh, reports regularly now a measure of what the Canadian unemployment rate would be if they used U.S. concepts. It is, it is pointed out in the introduction that people often use these Canada-U.S. differences for their own political gain. Uh, you know, if, if, the, if they don't like what the Canadians do, then they say that that resulted in something or other uh, different. I know that the, the comp- comparisons in crime, for example, are subject to that at all moments because it seems to be the case that uh, homicide rates are phenomenally high in the U.S. compared to Canada. Probably a lot of guns in Canada, too. <laughs> so maybe it's not all about guns. Who knows? Let, let's the, the, Another issue, I just wanted to bring up a couple more points. Uh, Immigration is another area where the U.S. and Canada, well, first of all, it's a very, you probably have noticed in the U.S., extremely topical and difficult, thorny, no agreement kind of issue. Canadians seem to have a more relaxed attitude about it. And and that obviously is a difference between the two countries. Have you thought about why that exists? I don't have an easy answer on that. I mean, we are a country of immigrants, but that's true for the U.S. too. <laughs> if you look at the history of immigration in Canada, the early 1900s, the number of immigrants coming to Canada relative to the population was just enormous. Uh, it's much lower now as relative to the population, although it's high, pretty high by Canadian standards right now. But I, I think we're we're similar to Australia. Um, Australia is a another former British colony. Uh, it's a federal system. It's very open to immigration, and, and we are. I think we've been fairly successful at, at integrating immigrants and developing a multicultural society. So many Canadian cities are very multi-ethnic. Even Calgary, which we think of as... Uh, cowboy town. Cowboy town, (laughs) oil town and cowboy town. It's the third most ethnically diverse city in Canada. And uh, if you walk around Vancouver or Toronto, you'll see, or Montreal, you'll see highly ethnic diverse society. It's not that there has been total acceptance of that, but uh, but, uh, immigration is, you know, in the surveys, indicate that most people are comfortable with Canada's... Uh, Why is that? There, That seems to be a hot political issue in the U.S. and not so much in Canada. Do you have any explanation for that? Well, one explanation is um, our point system, what's often referred to as our point system, which selects immigrants on their suitability for the Canadian labor market. So uh, immigrants, they don't do that well compared to native-born initially when they arrive you know, this is conditioning on their education and experience. Uh, but they they do catch up over time. And in general, they, they do well. They adapt well to, to uh, Canadian lifestyle and, and norms. The the second generation of immigrants do very well. They do, they do better in, in terms of educational attainment than native-born Canadians do. So that's another factor on the 
on the plus side. Let me let me uh, let me finish by just asking you one personal question. I'm kind of curious about. You're not the only economist I know in this position, but you've actually written a number of papers with your son, another Riddell. He's probably not named William. Is he named William too? Oh, he we we broke the broke the norm with him. <laughs> so it's just. I've always wondered why you were W. Craig Riddell, and, and I'm, you've explained that in this podcast, so I appreciate that. I, I can't imagine that very many economists write papers with their children. How did that come about? When he, he went to UBC as an undergrad, he started out in film. He wanted to become a, a, a film director, but he quickly learned that uh, his idea of a good film, which was Star Wars, was not <laughs> not the UBC uh film department's idea of a good film. And uh, we had encouraged him to at least do calculus and introductory economics in his first year, as well as the other courses he took. Uh, And he did do that. And so he had a fallback in the second year when he decided to switch out of film. And his girlfriend at the time was doing economics, so she had really good notes. So he he decided to stay in economics. (laughs) And then he uh, he actually came to quite enjoy it. He he had very good uh, in his fourth year. He had very good teachers in uh, David Green, a young colleague of mine, and uh, Denise Toiron, who was a former student of mine who who, who taught at UBC at the time. Um, and uh, that influenced his uh, decision. Um, and then he worked for uh, the government for a while. Um, but then decided to do a master's degree and uh, went to McMaster University and then ended up deciding he wanted to do a PhD. So he went to the University of Toronto and did, did a PhD in labor relations. We have some economics and some labor relations in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's been really wonderful to work with him. He's actually unique in that he's the only economist I know of who's published papers with his father and his mother. <laughs> Is that and right? His mother too. My late wife was a uh, a nurse, and she ended up being a, what they call a nurse practitioner, who specialized in HIV, AIDS, and addiction at the main one of the main hospitals in Vancouver. She got into that area when AIDS first was mainly a, 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 an illness of young gay men, and this was the that hospital was the one that was near the AIDS the AIDS. Uh, neighborhood uh, in Vancouver. And then later that the her clientele changed from young gay men to uh, injection drug users, but uh, w- she would talk about it at, at dinner time. And, uh, and one time she was talking about people who were admitted to hospital who were drug users. They had a strong incentive to leave the hospital, even though they hadn't finished their treatment, because if they were in hospital when the checks were being issued, there would be a deduction for the fact they were staying in a public, a deduction from their welfare check for the fact they were staying in a public facility. And so Chris said, well, can you get any data on that? And so she was able to produce data and they they did this paper, which was published in the Journal of Human Resources on the spike in uh, leaving hospital against medical advice <laughs> the day before the checks were being issued. <laughs> I can see how medicine and economics came together in one fell swoop. That evidence was so strong, they, they got the, the, the welfare 
uh, procedures changed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's good. Actually, those are that, that, that's the kind of paper that uh, doesn't get cited anymore because it changed everything, and you can't do it any again. Uh, Craig, it's been an absolute uh, delight to talk to you, and uh, I can only make the comment that per, pretty much every American makes about Canadians. They seem like such nice people, and I think you fit the you fit the bill pretty well. Our guest today has been W. Craig Riddell, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of British Columbia. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.